The Guardian. Hello, Science Weekly listeners. Ian Sample here. Following the success of their first takeover of the podcast, the team from The Guardian's Age of Extinction project are back with two more episodes this week. We hope you enjoy them. We'll be back next week. See you then. Hi, I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. We work together on a project called Age of Extinction. All our work centres around catastrophic biodiversity loss and ways we can tackle it. We did our first Science Weekly takeover in October on national parks. After some lovely messages from listeners, we've been allowed back, and this time Phoebe has been investigating the science of birdsong. Phoebe, what have you been up to? Well, Patrick, I've been listening to the Dawn Chorus just outside the New Forest with musician Cosmo Sheldrake. So I can take a note or extract of a robin's voice and I can spread it out across the keyboard, basically build it into a kind of organ or prepared piano, but using um, recordings of birds. Previously, he's made songs about the calls of humpback whales, parrotfish and tropical birds. More recently, Cosmo has produced an album using the calls of threatened British birds called Wake Up Calls. This is the owl song. This is pretty extraordinary, but why is this of interest to Science Weekly listeners? Obviously, bird song can be very beautiful and healthy bird populations are often important parts of healthy ecosystems. I wanted to find out if it can help our mental and physical health too. So I figured this would be a pretty good place to start. It's half five in the morning. Normally I'm fast asleep, but I'm dragging myself out of bed and I'm going to go and listen to some birds singing. And we've arrived. He lives down this long track, which slowly opens up to a clearing in the woods. This is your cottage? Mm-hmm. Cool, okay. Go and his house and is this beautiful whitewashed cottage. It kind of looks like something from a fairy tale. It's really in the middle of nowhere and it's really silent. You can't really see much because it's um, about six in the morning. Yeah. We walked to a pond where he set up a microphone. So we put one by the pond and another by the bird feeder about 10 metres away. Is this the pond? This the pond. OK, tiny little pond. And then we waited for the dawn chorus to come in. Do you have a favourite bird song? I mean, I absolutely love robins. Just there's something in the bell-like crystalline clarity of their song. And also skylarks. Listening to skylarks was one of the things that kind of first inspired me to make music out of bird songs. Cosmo's recording these sounds, which he then makes into music in his studio. Today, he's going to show me how he does that. Even the rain sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) So once we had all we needed, it was time to escape the rain and head into the studio. What exactly are we listening to here? This is a slowed down bit of birdsong. Cosmo does this quite a lot when he's making his work. But I find it helpful to sort of understand birds if you slow them down a bit more. And you also start to get more of a sense of the rich tapestry of what they're really communicating. And then I'll chop them up and put them onto a sampler. And this is 
the start of him layering up those sounds to create a track. So I'm just going to make something up using one of the recordings we made it. This is one he made earlier. It's from his album and it's called Cuckoo. It felt like being let into a secret world where bird noises kind of become conversations. I also thought his work was cool because it seems to be a cross between art and activism. And it's made me a lot more conscious of bird sounds. I wanted to find out a bit more about the scientific evidence for the benefits of listening to birdsong. So I got in touch with Dr. Eleanor Ratcliffe, a lecturer in environmental psychology at the University of Surrey. She specialises in people's well-being, their happiness and stress recovery in relation to different environments. Dr. Ratcliffe is leading the field on her work on the restorative effects of birdsong. People tend to find bird sounds more relaxing and more pleasant if they're kind of smooth and harmonic sounding, if they're high-pitched, if they're quiet, if they have a sense of complexity as well, so they give you something, you know, enough to focus on, enough stimulation. But if that complexity is constrained by a sense of pattern, so it's got some order or structure to it. If you think about kind of typical songbirds that you might hear in your garden, uh, robin, uh, wren, little birds like that, people tended to perceive them as less stressful, as better for helping people to relax if they had been stressed. And also, and I think most interestingly from my perspective as well, if people thought the bird sound was familiar to them. But it was a subjective sense of familiarity. So we played people different kinds of bird sounds from the UK, from Australia. Some were objectively familiar and some were objectively more novel. But people didn't know that and they interpreted the bird sounds as being familiar, even if they were from Australia. That's interesting because um, where I live in London, I mainly hear parakeets and I think that the sound of parakeets stresses me out. I don't think it's a very nice sound, but also I think that my association with parakeets as an invasive species maybe makes me also think negatively about them. Yeah, I think that's highly likely. And that's certainly something I found in my research as well. So A, it's kind of the acoustic properties because a parakeet is quite a kind of shrill, rough sound. But like you say, there's the associative value as well. So if you're thinking about a bird sound as being representative of an invasive species, maybe it has this negative connotation that then impacts on the way you perceive the sound. Did you look at all of what the mechanisms behind that are? Like, What's the evolutionary theory behind why we generally find birdsong relaxing? That's an interesting question. So there are two main theories in this area. The first one is called stress reduction theory. It suggests that humans evolved in natural environments and therefore maybe those are the settings in which we function best. But all of that is quite visually focused. But you can maybe extrapolate from that and think that if the birds are singing, it's quite likely that it's a safe environment, that there aren't predators around. And therefore, that could be why we react positively when birds are singing. The second theory is a bit more cognitively focused. And this theory suggests that certain environments have properties that help people to recover their attention when it's been fatigued. But both of the theories have limitations in that they don't explicitly talk about 
acoustic stimuli. That's something that we're working on in the field to try and make these theories a bit more representative of the different ways in which we engage with our environment. Phoebe, I'm a little sceptical. What kind of evidence did Dr Ratcliffe collect? Isolating the effect of nature on a happiness must be really hard. It's a good point, and I asked her about that. She uses a range of research techniques. Well, I did a number of different studies, and the, the first one was a set of interviews with people. So because qualitative interviewing involves talking to people a bit more in-depth, I was interviewing 20 people. Each interview lasted somewhere around 30 to 45 minutes. I really went quite in-depth. For the studies where I was getting people to rate lots of sound clips of different birds, see how relaxing they would find them, and then to try and predict those scores based on different properties of the sound. That was with around 200 participants, and they were completing an online survey. And as part of that, they also provided some qualitative data, so memories and associations and meanings that they linked with each sound. And then in building the predictive model, I aggregated all the scores of the different birds together and used each individual bird sound as a a way of building the model. How does this area of research differ globally? And I guess different cultures interact with nature in different ways. Have you looked at that at all? I did find that there was an association with culture. People were mapping their associations of birds onto whatever it was they were hearing. And a lot of these meanings and interpretations were cultural. So people were saying, oh, in my country, this bird has a bad association. We have folklore or superstitions associated with it. I had all of these British participants listening to a mix of British and Australian birds. And what I would have loved to have done is to play those same sounds to Australian participants and see if the results were reversed. In the context of restorative environments research more generally, it is or has traditionally had quite a a Western, European and American focus, particularly in the kind of experimental research where people are exposed to, say, pictures or a video of an urban environment versus a natural environment. It's always a kind of ugly grey city that is presented versus a beautiful green sunlit pasture. And clearly, neither of those are completely representative of what urban and natural environments look like. So what I'm really excited about seeing, particularly in the last couple of years, is more attention to looking at how different types of nature might be restorative. I asked Dr Ratcliffe what the future of this field of research was, both in terms of birdsong and also natural sounds more generally. Well, I used birdsong really as almost a lens, actually, to understand more about the psychological experience of positive sounds. So what I would really like to see is how we can get people to pay more attention to sounds around them in the world. In an academic sense, I think the implication of the work I've done is to try and open up restorative environments to more diverse sensory understanding. So for me, one of the limitations of previous theorising in this area has been that it kind of excludes people who experience the environment not through vision. So it's been really important, I think, to understand that sounds can convey a lot of meaning and value about the environment to people. So I think just really diversifying our sensory understanding of environments and how we, we respond to those psychologically. Phoebe, spending time in nature makes us feel good, and Eleanor's research points to birdsong playing a role in that. But what is the evidence of it helping people in a medical sense? It's a new area, but it's growing quickly. Prescribing nature is starting to become part of mainstream healthcare. In July 2020, the UK government announced a £4 million investment 
to examine how we could scale up green prescriptions in communities hardest hit by the pandemic. Natural England, which is the UK government's wildlife body, reckons the NHS could save more than £2 billion if everyone in England had access to good quality green space. Are you suggesting this could replace some medical practices? Experts aren't suggesting that people should just chuck the towel in with normal medication, but the idea is that it could be used alongside them. I wanted to find out more, so I spoke with the fantastically named Dr William Bird to find out about what we could expect from green prescriptions in the future. Now, green prescriptions can also be called things like ecotherapy and nature prescriptions, but it's all basically the same thing. Dr Bird is a GP. He set up green gyms and worked with Natural England to help develop a natural health system. In 2010, he was awarded an MBE for his contribution to health and physical activity. What we mean by nature-based therapy is contact with nature in any form that actually impacts your health and can actually make a difference. People often think that nature-based therapy is about going into this sort of wilderness, into the national park. But actually, for nature-based therapy to really work, it's got to be close to where you live. And that can be from a window box in your house all the way through to going to a small pocket park. And therefore, nature-based therapy is actually always in reach. So could you give me an example of what a nature prescription is? There are a few aspects here. One of them would be the fact that you can go out and do conservation work. It gives you that real sense of purpose, which is so important. And you're really close to nature and you learn a lot about what you're trying to do. And we know from the research that mental health really improves after the green gym, really quite significantly. And that's about equal effect to an antidepressant when you're outdoors in nature. And it's interesting that all of those do involve exercise. Are you able to separate out the benefits of one being in nature and two exercise? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd say it's early work. And I think one has to be very kind of, you know, as a researcher, you have to look at this objectively. But there has been some research which does show promising signs that actually green exercise is superior to your health than if you're doing it in the gym. So to understand the studies, one needs to know a little bit about what's actually going on in the body. The biggest effect on being active is that it takes away the inflammation in the body. And that is when the immune system turns against itself which then causes problems like diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, dementia, depression, anxiety. And we also know that inflammation can be reduced slightly more when stress is reduced. So green exercise, which reduces stress, will be overall far better for the body than if you're just doing it indoors. I asked Dr Bird what medical evidence there was for the theories behind why we like birdsong that Dr Ratcliffe mentioned earlier. In the last five or 10 years, there's been an explosion of information and evidence. And now with PET scans, we can actually see which areas of the brain are affected when you look at nature. And they can also do mobile stress indicators, finding out how much cortisol and how much sweat is coming through. So you can start to look at when people are walking through nature, whether their stress levels are the same or different, whether heart rate is going up or down compared to walking without nature. So that has really given us loads more information to understand that actually nature has this incredibly strong impact on the brain in restoring it. Are you able to separate out the different components of nature? So, for example, birdsong or the smells or what we might see? 
Well, yes, and Matilda van der Bosch, who wrote the book with me, all about how nature impacts on health and well-being, did some very interesting studies where she actually showed trees and wildlife, and then she took the sound away and made that sound a white noise or just nothing at all. When people saw all the beautiful trees and heard birdsong, they really felt quite strongly relaxed and felt good. But when the birdsong was removed, it actually went the opposite direction. It made them more stressed. And it shows that we just want the complete picture. The other part is that in post-operative work, where people have been coming out of an operation and birdsong has been played to them, they found that the recovery was better and there was less need of analgesia. That certainly is promising in the fact that we could be using nature-based therapy in hospitals to actually help recovery. I asked Dr Bird about how people feel about being prescribed nature as opposed to being prescribed medication. Because obviously we've got very used to being prescribed the latter and I thought maybe people would feel a bit fobbed off. I would say that this is our biggest problem. If I've got someone in front of me and they've got high blood pressure, they've got their diabetes getting a bit more out of control, then I could refer them to the hospital. I could get a diabetologist to have a look at them, do some tests. You know, there'd be some things we could do which is in the medical model. Or I could prescribe them nature-based therapy. Now, for that patient who's really worried about their health, they would feel that was a cop-out. They would feel that I'm trying to save money for the NHS by shoving them over into nature-based therapy. So we've got to get that into people's mind. We have to get them to understand the science behind it. So there's a long way we've got to do, not just to get all the doctors on board, but to get the patients as well on board. And so how would these natural prescriptions complement traditional medication? Well, we're already looking at social prescribing in some places. It's been around for a very long time. And I think what we'll be seeing is that nature therapy will be used much more often before we go straight to medication. And if it shows your blood pressure's dropped and you don't need tablets, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. It may be that you need a very low level of medication plus the nature-based therapy. So in other words, it complements it. What do you think the future is for people being aware of the impact of nature on their health and therefore, I guess, giving out nature prescriptions. So I think now the most important thing is to try and get these guidelines so that we can absolutely embed nature therapy in the NHS. And these guidelines will say what kind of nature it will be, which diseases and which people are going to benefit the most, and then what are the side effects. But my view is that in five or 10 years, we'll have nature guidelines right through at the NHS as mainstream. Like Dr Bird said, it's still early days for the research and more evaluation needs to be done to show the direct effects of nature-based therapy. It's very difficult to prove the effects in such a holistic treatment where you can't easily control for other factors. Definitely, but some of these treatments are really encouraging. I have to ask, Did you get a green prescription yourself during the talk with Dr Bird? No, I didn't. But I did ask him if he had any advice for listeners experiencing the winter blues. It's a daily walk, exploring your area and watching and noticing. And that really has an impact on your health far more than you'd ever guess. And probably better than most of the medicines I give out every day. This episode 
episode shows, there is some science behind why nature makes us feel good. So the question is, if nature has these beneficial effects, why aren't we taking better care of it? Next episode, we'll be reversing it and looking at how our lives impact the lives of birds. We're also going to look at how listening to birdsong can help us understand biodiversity more generally. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about The Guardian's charity appeal. After a year like few others, the 2020 campaign will help fund three organisations to support young people who've been impacted by the pandemic. Children and young adults have made big sacrifices to protect the old and vulnerable in our society this year, especially those from poorer families. With that in mind, The Guardian has chosen to support UK youth, young minds and Child Poverty Action Group in this year's appeal. All three charities do important work to empower and support young people. To learn more about the campaign and donate, please visit theguardian.com slash charityappeal2020. Or you can phone in for our annual charity telethon on Saturday the 19th of December. Guardian and Observer journalists like John Crace, Polly Toynbee and Amelia Gentleman will be waiting at the end of the phone, as well as our editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner. Lines are open between 10am and 4pm. The phone number is 020-7550-9347. Here's one more of Cosmo's tunes to play us out. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Lucy Evans. The executive producer was Max Sanderson, and the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction was Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation and by the WIS Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at guardian.com. You'll also find links to any reports or articles mentioned in this episode. Thanks to Cosmo Sheldrake for letting us use his music. Do check out his album online, Wake Up Calls. We've received lots of lovely emails after our first Science Weekly takeover, so keep them coming. If you have any thoughts, feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.